Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. So today's guest, um, I have here with me uh, Kevin Heyer from the Higher Calling Foundation. It is a Philadelphia-based nonprofit that helps people that have uh, had substance prior issues with substance use disorders and addictions. Uh, they offer uh, free career coaching, employment skills, training, legal fees to help uh, people uh, get their driver's license reinstated if it's been taken away and, and so much more. Um, he is a former labor employment attorney who, as he was approaching 40 years old, kind of had a midlife crisis like so many other people. He was newly single and uh, tried meth for the first time at 39 years old. And within eight weeks, uh, quickly became uh, addicted and lost his dream job at this high profile uh, employment firm. He, well, he survived a near fatal overdose. I'll let him uh, go into that. And um, worked the recovery program for the last two uh, for two for the next two years, and then he turned this humbling life experience into a passion that is now the Higher Calling Foundation. Is is his path took a different turn, and he wants to help others. So it's it's a beautiful story. Um, anyway, the Higher Calling Foundation. Uh, offers career coaching, helps former addicts apply their transferable skills to new new employment opportunities. Uh, you've built relationships with businesses uh, who want to give people with prior substance use disorder a second chance. And uh, the foundation encourages and teaches people, companies, how to promote a recovery-friendly workplace, offer peer services, uh, and think of think of hiring former addicts as, a, as part of a, their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative because a lot of them have burned their bridges uh, everywhere else. So on a personal note, uh, Kevin likes, uh, he is a self-described audiophile, audiophile who likes, yeah, I like music, I just, yeah. yeah, it loves me. I'm sure you're back, happy to have the concerts back and uh, it's been two or three years. Um, you love Jimmy Buffett and a, a good workout at a gym and you grew up with two brothers. So I like a little bit of a personal uh, spin. So thank you so much, Kevin, for being here. One of the things that stood out uh, about your story is that it never occurred to me that people try drugs in their 30s. I definitely thought that if people made it through their 20s, like didn't try drugs in high school or drink, I, I never think of somebody in their 30s, late 30s, trying something like meth for the first time. So I'd love to know like how that happened. Like, uh, was it with people you knew or were you like out at a club and a stranger offered you something? I tell the story very tastefully, but honestly, to, to take as much positive from this. Um, so I was 39 years old, dangerously close to 40, as I put it. I used a little bit of levity to make this easier to talk about. And I um, was newly single. I had broken up with another attorney, another man. And I was feeling somewhat lost. You know, here I was in midlife, single for the first time. I had this image of where I was going to be in my life, and I wasn't. And I went to the beach with some friends, and um, a, a gentleman offered me math. And just in a moment of insecurity and weakness, I had never used drugs before this. I think I had tried edibles maybe a few times and drank. Mm -hmm. I went with it, you know, and within eight weeks, I was shooting up in crack houses and very much out of a really good job. I got addicted the first time. So that's how it happened. You know, it was a moment of weakness at the beach with some friends trying to get my mojo back kind of thing. Like think how Stella got a group yeah, back, yeah, yeah, yeah. but a group of gay men, okay. <laughs> 
we have to use humor here, okay? Um, and that's the bottom line. It's, I was with some friends. I was trying to get my group, my mojo back, and and he offered it to me, and it was just one of those. I made a mistake, and here we are today. For uh, you mentioned in some of the um, other interviews that I saw that meth in, enhances intimacy, which is I just wanted. I was curious because I've never heard that from anyone, and I'd love to. Uh, without you know elaborate on that like is it you know longer sessions just does it make you want to be more uninhibited with lots we're of all adults here yeah yeah, yeah okay meth is a very okay i'll keep it real here meth is a very very powerful advocacy oh. that's why i got a stranglehold in the gay male subculture it's not a gay issue it's a meth is a powerful aphrodisiac now the problem is it destroys your life in every other respect afterwards and that's that's the answer to your question yes yeah, I, it was just new information. I had never heard. A basic so, Google search on meth and, and sex brings stuff up on that. That's part of the evil of it. So in all seriousness, part of the evil to me of methamphetamine is it draws people who might ordinarily never you know, have been into drugs, but you put that little asterisk beside it and the human need, you know, it gets your attention. But, oh, it's evil stuff. Methamphetamine is, they call it the devil's drug for a reason. Were you going to seedy neighborhoods that you had never been into? It was an experience because it was a culture completely anathema to my values. But what I learned is even in the face of serious addiction, you can see our higher powers and there are still good people in that drug subculture. So yes, I was going into seedy neighborhoods to buy it, but even there I saw the humanity and this is where I can go deep. And I hope your listeners take something from it. You know, every drug dealer I had gave me advice on how to quit. They, nobody grows up wanting to sell crystal meth at 30. You know what I mean? Like nobody's thinking, hey, when I'm 30 years old, I want to be on a street corner in Philadelphia selling meth. You know, now those were one-on-one -on -one conversations, but it was very scary. I, I didn't know anything about the drug culture and I was then part of it. Wow. Um, are you still working the program? Are you ever tempted at this point, four years later to to use? I Because I know many alcoholics that have been clean and sober for 30, 40 years, and they still go to meetings sometimes. So oh, I go to meetings. Yeah, oh, you, you do. Um, yeah. I mean, I, let me say this, I'm secure in my sobriety, but do I have thoughts? Of course. I mean, methamphetamine is so powerfully addictive, but all addiction is powerful. Um, yeah, I go to meetings. Well, one of the things that you brought up in an interview that really st stood out to me is that something I just wasn't thinking about is how easily, like how how hard it is with alcohol, because everywhere you go, alcohol's there, weddings, parties, restaurants, you've got to lunch, whereas, you know, things like meth and heroin, it's not so readily available. People aren't offering it to you. So um, it was just something to think about. It's so you to get over those, actually. Yeah. That's the irony. Alcohol is more socially acceptable on the front end. There's less judgment to having an alcohol addiction. But I believe, frankly, men and women who overcome alcohol are the strongest because it's everywhere. Yeah. I don't run into methamphetamine or heroin on the street. If you run into it on the street, you're looking for it. Huh? But a man or woman in recovery from alcohol may go to a restaurant and a server offers them a drink with lunch. You see it in a grocery store. Alcohol, I have a lot of respect for people who overcome alcohol. Because that's not the devil on my shoulder. For me, it was stimulants, meth and coke. But yes. for those, it's alcohol. They're strong people. All right. So you mentioned in, um, that addictions are arise out of inefficiently managed trauma. And lately, as well as I'm researching more for this show, and it makes me very curious about my my own brother who struggles um, that, and that it recovery is rigorous honesty. So I never, and it, it's good people making bad decisions. So if you want to elaborate, 
we all have problems in our lives. You know, for me, and I'm very frank about it, it was an insecurity about finding myself single in midlife. It bothered me. I felt like I had done everything right. I had worked hard. I had a great career as an attorney. I didn't want that stigma or what I perceived as a stigma around that. So that was a pain. But people have lots of trauma. And when you use drugs and alcohol, obviously you get high or drunk from it. It feels good. But the problem is once it wears off, the problems just become even bigger. So it becomes this vicious cycle of where you're using that substance. And it's all the same hurt rate, whether you're addicted to alcohol, opiates, stimulants, it's all the same thing. That same neurotoxin, that substance to soothe the pain is making it worse. And that addiction, because it's a progressive disease, the effects get worse and worse until it kills you. And it, it, this is a deadly, it's a, it's a serious illness, but it's a very treatable illness. And that's the message of hope I offer is you must get treatment or it's going to kill you. But you can get treatment. It is treatable. And there is hope. And at a federal level, they have introduced something called SB44. It's called Alexandra's Law. So what the, what the government is trying to do is really go after people who sell these fentanyl-laced products um, knowingly. They want to charge them if somebody dies with murder. And uh, in, initially, my thought, I was on board, like, awesome, because I have, I've known people now who've passed away and I... It's it's very frustrating and I felt like they should be. But then I was listening to a couple civil rights attorneys uh, discussing this on LinkedIn and they have they made me it kind of humbled me. And they're they bring to the attention that everybody, not everyone, but a lot of the people that are selling are addic addicts themselves and struggling. So they don't want they don't want this to happen at all. They don't want them. I, I know that. Um, like Michael Jackson's doctor, the one who gave him uh, his drugs, he lost his medical license. He definitely went to prison for a couple of years. And just recently, just a, two weeks ago, uh, I don't know if you had heard Robert De Niro's grandson overdosed. He got some pills um, and they immediately, like within a few days, caught the gal who, who gave him because there had been this ex lengthy text exchange, but they're going to charge her. So I don't know if it will be murder, but I'd like to hear your thoughts having lived through it what you think about these legis legislative efforts to criminalize and, and put these people who sell, if they knowingly sell something with fentanyl because it's so deadly, if they should be charged with murder or, or you know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I actually, ultimately what led me into rehab was an overdose of fentanyl that had gotten into the meth that I had bought and it left me on dialysis for 10 days. And it was at that point, my parents, you know, realized their 40 year old son had a drug problem because obviously as an adult, I wasn't living with them. Um, so I have overdosed and I get the, the fear around it. Uh, I mean, this is a complicated issue that we could spend a lot of time on. I tend to probably lean towards where those civil rights attorneys were. Low level dealers are addicts themselves. You know, they're not trying to kill anyone. I mean, everything I learned about managing a meth addiction, I learned from other addicts. You know, I told you every dealer I had one on one gave me advice on how to quit. So I'm not defending selling drugs and I'm not in any way a drug apologist. I'm just saying they're still human beings. Okay. And they're not trying to kill someone. I have a hard time calling a murder conviction for distributing fentanyl to a friend. Now, if you're manufacturing it in Mexico, that's a whole other story, but low level addicts or their deal, or excuse me, strike that low level dealers are addicts themselves too. And they're not trying to kill someone. It's a mess of a situation I see as a public health crisis rather than a criminal justice one. Okay. Let's talk about uh, the Higher Calling Foundation. Let's go into that, your foundation, uh, the collateral wraparound services that you provide. Sure. 
and just kind of give an overview and then we'll go into that. Absolutely. Yeah, I love talking about this. It really is a higher calling. Um, Higher is my last name, H-Y-E-R. So it's a play on words. And the beauty of it is addiction recovery is often, not always, but often about a belief in a higher power. Although you certainly do not have to embrace the 12 steps to recover. I have quite a few friends and, and team members who've recovered secularly. But the Higher Calling Foundation does really two things. We fill a void in the market for services when you leave rehab to help you get a second chance at a career. Insurance will pay to send you to rehab and they'll pay for counseling, but there's nothing out there to fill, replace, to, to rebuild your life. Now there's people lose everything in addiction sometimes. And what we do is we privately fill that void in the market for what you could call almost addiction recovery insurance. We will help you get a driver's license reinstated. We'll help you go back to work. We'll help you get interview attire. We'll place you in jobs. We'll help you even get to interviews. We'll even help you get to work until your first paycheck. You know, it's all highly individualized services for people accepted into our program to give them a second chance at a career. Because we believe that the purpose and meaning from work and the gratitude you get from that second chance draws down the pull of addiction to a manageable level with treatment. So I use my own story. I had a very serious crystal meth addiction. I had a serious addiction to the most addictive drug that I used in the most addictive way. You know, I, I acknowledge it. I was shooting it at the end. The purpose I get from this, the meaning I get, you know, I'm helping other families avoid the pain mine went through. And the gratitude I feel that, you know what? I actually can go to a bar association event and I can show my face. You know, people at least respect what I'm doing. That makes the pull of addiction down to a level that I can manage it by going to meet. So that's what we're doing there. And it's all free. And insurance does not cover that. It's just a fact. And no one else, to the best of my knowledge, is really doing what we're doing in terms of the breadth and depth. You know, coaching, uh, reference advocacy, we'll go back to a former employer for you and say, look, I get you can't take this person back. But is there a way we could get an endorsement on something they did well? I love doing stuff like that. We'll give you an internship with us. We'll place you in an internship with someone else. You know, there's so much stuff we do. You know, we have relationships with businesses that we can place you. You know, we do networking events for people in recovery. We have a mentorship program, you know. So if you want to get into a certain field, we'll match you with a mentor in recovery. Or if they're not in recovery, at least what we call an ally, somebody who supports this. The other side of the house is selling to businesses. And I can do this as an employment attorney, training on how to have a recovery sensitive workplace. You know, how to talk about addiction at work. You know, how do you show your employees that you are sensitive? Well, still, clearly, not. you don't have to let people come to work drunk or hot. You never say that. You know, that's not a reasonable accommodation. But that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, that you help them. So, so many people have burned their bridges and they can't go back to what they were doing. Awesome, so. Yes. So you help them with with their transferable skills and maybe they can do something else. Like, could you give a, a couple examples of yeah. that type of situation? That's like some, a job that didn't take them back and they needed to yeah. go somewhere else. Absolutely. I'm thinking of an example right now. I had a gentleman in Virginia who had three DUIs. That may sound like a lot, but you know, for someone who has a serious addiction to alcohol, that can happen. Three DUIs in Virginia is a felony. He can't go back to insurance. So what we focused on was what could he do rather than ruminating over the fact that a felony conviction prevented him from what he was doing before. We identified he had some great sales skills, you know, and he's a very charismatic gentleman. And he's now now selling some other things, doing incredibly well at it. And he's rebuilding a life for himself. So that's a great example of it. 
you know, we had a nurse, okay? She lost her license due to diverting pills. Diversion is a nice word for stealing. She had a serious pill oh. problem. Okay. Now a nurse recruiter. So, you know, she can't go back. Now, she may be able to someday go back to what she did. But we help you find those transferable skills so that you get that second chance. I believe most people deserve a second chance. And when addiction comes from trauma anyway, so, you know, Giving them, when you don't give someone in recovery a second chance, you're punishing them for something that usually they didn't even choose, you know? You know, Kevin, you just made me think of one of my patients. So uh, I'm a, I've been a chiropractor for 23 years. Uh, so her father was uh, a physician's assistant, he, you know, and when his, her mother died years ago of cancer, it was quick and she was very young and the dad, just, it was trauma. He, he lost his partner. So he got addicted to painkillers and, uh, and he was, I guess that word, what was the word you just used? A fancy diversion. Word. Yeah. Diversion. So he was taking pills. He was caught. So he lost his, his medical license. So he is able to work in another state. He desperately wants to come back to California, but it, she said it took like six years for anybody to yeah. even hire him. Like it would be wonderful if he would have the opportunity. If so, I don't know if an employer ever does it and says, well, what happened? And he's, he could share that. Well, my wife died. I was in so much pain or if it, or, or if it's just strictly too much of a liability, they have to say, it doesn't matter. We, we just can't have you on board. I love that question. You know, for me, when I fell into the, the meth subculture and it's a community, it's a dysfunctional one, but it is a community of people doing their best. And I heard the stories of how people got addicted, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault, sometimes, you know, twisted family rituals, like, started smoking weed with my dad at 14. By 17, we did some coke together. And by 21, it had escalated to meth or heroin. There's an element of America that looks that way. So we don't know the stories behind all this stuff. You know, I think you could share, depending on the circumstances of the job and your own background, some of that stuff. Part of one of the many services we offer that I haven't even mentioned is we will help our clients accept it into our program, navigate the selection process and understand what is oversharing and what's not oversharing and what might be appropriate to disclose, you know, and we also stay with you in your first year of employment. So if you're navigating issues at work, we're there to support you. We believe very strongly once we accept you into our program, we will work with you and it's all free to get you that second chance. So your question is the stuff you could tell an employer. I think it would depend on the facts and circumstances, but, you know, Ultimately, there are laws, you know, if you, if you get three DUIs, it doesn't really matter why you were drunk driving, you're, you're going to be helped. To. But you deserve a second chance. And that's where the Higher Calling Foundation steps up to help you get that second chance, even in the face of whatever realities we may have to deal with. Okay. Um, how do you get employers on board? Because this is what your nonprofit's about four years old now. So how do you, are you cold calling or is it word of mouth? How, what's the process like? Sure. Well, I'm happy to, to share. We have a corporate sponsor, which is Petroleum Marketing Group out of Falls Church, Virginia, outside D.C. They're a corporate sponsor. And then we have a local one here in Philadelphia, the Heart of Catering, which is a, a restaurant. So those are the two we work with. But we're building out our relationships. You know, we go to different businesses to share what we're doing. If we have a candidate we think might be a fit will approach them. Now, those are two businesses that have formal affiliations with us. Other businesses, we have to go on a case-by-case -case basis with who the individual is. You know, but what we say to these organizations, whether we have an existing relationship or one, we're trying to develop one. When you hire someone in recovery, you're getting a great employee. You're getting a deeply appreciative employee. 
grateful, hardworking one who had a second chance. And they're so emotionally mature from this experience. It brings out the leadership quality she wants, self-awareness, humility, empathy, perseverance. Some people consider it DEI. You know, I know that's a, a sensitive topic right now in the media. So you may not want to think of it as that, oh. but it's, it, I believe it is, but that's a separate conversation. What I want your listeners to hear is it's good business, however you want to label it to hire someone in recovery because you are doing a good thing, but it's business. You get a good employee. You have such a life-changing experience that they can bring into the workplace. They've been to hell and back. You know, I've been on a dialysis machine for 10 days as a result of my addiction. I've, I've, I've been within an eyelash of death and I appreciate this second chance. And that's what I'm trying to give other people. Yeah, that's pretty. Your story of being, was it found in a field? You were unconscious? In a wooded, yeah, I was, um, off a wooded in a wooded area off a rural road in Virginia by a couple more now my friends Tina and Robbie Blake they're listening hi Tina and Robbie they were driving down the road and saw a body in a wooded area off this country road and it was me overdosed on meth and um, they called the police and got me to a hospital and 10 days later I was off dialysis and here I am that was I'm so grateful to have this second chance and Oh. Get out there and break those stereotypes, because particularly on methamphetamine, that, that that tweaker in a trailer park image of it is just not accurate. And it's very damaging for a lot of people, because if you fit it, you internalize it. And if you don't fit it, you may not think you have a problem when you do. Can you discuss your current goals of the career coaching from uh, the International Coaching Association? I heard that in a couple of your other interviews. I'd love to elaborate on that. Yeah. So our marquee service, what I would say is the one that is most popular is coaching through International Coach Federation Credential Coaches. And that's kind of like the gold standard of coaching, life and career coaching. And that stuff businesses spend thousands on for their executives. And we can offer it for free to our clients. Again, you have to be accepted into our program, you know, be able to pass a drug and alcohol test. Imagine that. But, you know, <laughs> if you meet our criteria, um, we really, the sky's the limit on what we can do for you. You know, we don't send you back to college, but we can get you skills training. But that particular service that you talked about has, has gotten us a lot of attention. And it's just one-on-one -on -one coaching. You think of like coaching as a kid playing sports or as an adult playing sports. That's what we're offering. You know, how do you make goals and get to them? You know, I have coaching. It's a great thing, you know, and it's a complement to therapy. So it's not, it's not in, in place of it. Um, and we just, and it's, it's great for our, our clients. It helps them meet their goals and our, coaches are all exceptional they're on our website we have like close to 12 at this point okay. um, are, are they have are a team they... of about 20 people now wow that's that's amazing you know i self-funded the first two years of it just because of how strongly i believe in it we've now started to generate some private support from from some families touched by this or corporate sponsor but absolutely to do this well costs money um you know, and there is no insurance for it. That's that's when I make a pitch in the business community. What I say is there's no insurance to help you get a license reinstated. So then these people keep driving. Well, they aren't supposed to do that. And they get in more trouble and the cycle of addiction continues. You know, and I'll give you an example of something. A donor gave us $1,000. What we did with that 1000 and this donor knows what that went for, oh. was to help a woman get a prostitution conviction expunged. It was a 20-year-old conviction. And whether, whatever you think of that topic, the bottom line was it was 20 years old. 
We didn't think she should be shamed in the job selection process, having to over and over again disclose a prostitution conviction from 20 years ago. So that $1,000 that donor made, we used to pay an outside attorney to help her get expunged. And what it did for her confidence to not have to worry about having to ever bring that damn thing up again was a beautiful thing. And that helps promote her recovery. So that's the kind of stuff our donors' dollars go to. Or $1,000 gets you 10 sessions with one of our coaches because we pay at a negotiated rate for different ones. Okay. So that's when your listeners hear this, that's what our dollars go to, are real specific things that help someone get a second chance. Like I said, to not have to be embarrassed by disclosing a prostitution addiction. We think that's doing, we think that's God's work. That I think so too. I think it's amazing. I didn't realize something 20 years old would have to be shared or. Um... It's just wrong. There's no reason to force someone to disclose that 20 years later. So, you know, it, it's, as you can see, I'm very passionate about it because it saves their lives. Because if they relapse, they, they, the risk of death increases over time with addiction because it's a progressive disease. Okay. So even if you're not using drugs or alcohol, the disease picks up power in your body. What I mean by that is this. Any of your listeners in recovery know what I mean by this. Now, the rehabs will tell you when you're in recovery, your disease is doing push-ups in the parking lot. Oh. I'll slow down my speech. I speak quickly, but this is important. The disease picks up strength over time. So if God forbid you relapse 10 years into recovery, the effect on your body will be no different than if you had not stopped using drugs or alcohol for 10 years. That's why so many people die when they relapse. Well, there was a, a very well-known actor who overdosed a few years ago, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was one of my yes. favorite. And I remember hearing something to the effect, I think they found him in a bathroom and there was a lot of heroin like around and he had been clean for many, many years. And it was kind of shocking and it was very sad. He was so, so talented and a nice person and just... I, nice people can have drug addictions, right. you know. I know you get that, but that's that's what we're trying to say. Nice people can have a drug problem or alcohol addiction. And we don't fit any particular stereotype. Uh, how do people become um, part of the program? Do they, Are they referred to you? Do they just reach out directly through your website? Or are you do you have these rehab facilities that know about you and say, hey, you're clean now. We can refer you to this great nonprofit. How does, how, how, what's the selection process? How does sure. someone get to have utilize your services? Absolutely. Sometimes they are referred by rehabs, sober living chains, sometimes private therapists. Other times they will find us on their own. Um, a little bit, even to some degree, my own involvement in the 12-step community. But when they approach us, you know, we want to work with people. We're not looking to turn people away. So when we do say no, it's often more not now rather than no. It's You need a little more time of sobriety under your belt. Clearly, you have to be sober. You know, you need to have at least 90 days or so before we're ever going to even consider any kind of job placement and more like six months, you know, and we try to ease you back into the workplace. Like one of the initiatives I'm doing now that I really enjoy is having them work 20 hours a week or having them stay in outside counseling another 20. So we ease you back into it because it's so, the stakes are so high, you know, it's your life. And, and obviously also, frankly, our, our brand, our re reputation, you know, we're not going to place you in a position until we're comfortable that you're going to succeed for us, but also for you. We don't want you to fail and, and feel even worse about yourself. So that's how they find us. And then we work with them and create a whole individualized plan, get them back to work and get them that second chance. Well, I, I love that you have so much counseling available because um, I know in California, you know, a lot of rehab, it's so cost prohibitive. Just therapy is cost prohibitive. Most 
Uh, most insurances don't cover it. You might get a handful of visits, six or six or twelve, if that. It can during COVID. It was it was several months. Now, just this week, I think just a couple of days ago, um, our fe- the president and vice president they passed something called the Mental Parity Act. Very timely. They're trying to have insurance. Have to provide. I have mixed feelings about. Mostly, I'm on board. I don't like the federal government telling people what to do. But you know, there's so many ways they get out of it. There that they haven't had to cover these services, and they should. I was curious, like, who paid for your rehab? Like, did you have insurance? Because out here, I know my brother went through rehab twice in the '80s. That was 30 years ago, and it was like 25, 30 grand a month, and his employer put him through it. Um, but, but nowadays, I mean, it's all of these in-house places are so cost prohibitive. So how did you, did your insurance pay or was it just out of pocket for yourself? I had the resources through insurance and my own means to go to rehab, but you make a great point. There is such a race and class component to addiction in America that I feel strongly about it. You know, I tend to come from a place of those of us who may have had a little more have an obligation to give back. You know, people who are slower socioeconomic classes, racial minorities disproportionately do not get to go to rehab and they don't have the same outcomes. So I went to an incredible rehab, the Farley Center in Williamsburg, Virginia. And one of the things we try to do is, you know, our focus is employment, but just make awareness in our work out there. You know, not everyone has the ability to go to rehab and that's unfortunate because it saved my life. And, you know, we're out there offering these services to help, as I said, pull the power of addiction down to a manageable level. So it's one tool of many, you know, and again, the 12 step model that I named the foundation after is just one way, you know, life ring secular recovery is a terrific program. Um, for those who follow a more secular paths, she, uh, she recovers foundation for women in recovery. There's smart international. We are not evangelizing the AA 12 step model. We're just saying you need to get some kind of treatment, whatever it is. We don't really care. Just go get it because this disease, as I said, is progressive and it will kill you if you don't get treatment, but it is treatable. And that's the, the note I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a heavy note if you need to get it, but you can. You know, there is hope. There is promise. And we're delivering it every day. There's another initiative that you're working on to to have every employer out there have Narcan available and train them. Um, I think the FDA just approved it like an, an uh, something that you don't have to have a prescription over-the-counter Narcan spray. And I've, I've promoted that on LinkedIn and my social media that... You know, I think every every home in America should just have something like this in their cupboard, like aspirin now or, or something like that. Tell us about that and how, you, how you're going about that, getting an employer to report. Yeah. So last summer, it was actually just a year ago, it was mid-July of 22, we launched it. The Associated Press and Bloomberg picked it up, um, as well as some other media outlets. And what we're saying to employers across America is, look, if you believe in giving back to your community, most employers do, that's great when you do things like sponsor little Okay, but maybe also consider a little levity, but it's true. Do that stuff. That's great. Do a holiday food drive, but also educate your staff on how to use Narcan, because even if they don't use drugs, they live in the world and you may be in traffic or in a restaurant or somewhere where somebody overdoses and it doesn't always happen right away. It's not like you do it. The overdose occurs just after they took the drug. It can happen at different times. And if you could save a life, wouldn't you want to? And Narcan is effective, you know, and there are different products out there now and they're always changing. So what we focused on was Narcan nasal spray. But all of our trainings on how to promote a recovery sensitive workplace include training on how to use it. And we think it should be like using a fire extinguisher or giving CPR 
or knowing how to use a defibrillator. We need to normalize it. You know, we're not defending drug use, we're just being real. It's a reality in America today. The pandemic led to such a surge in substance use, you know, and I, I've been on NBC and PBS and NPR and other media outlets. Oh, that's and I try great. To, thank you. Yeah. And I try to say this, you know, that we've got to address addiction in America. The, the pandemic forced our hand on We can't ignore this any longer. I definitely, yeah, don't like to put your head head in the sand approach and, and be real. I mean, right now- well, You I, can, but we know what the outcome's going to yeah. be. You know, I, I, I think fentanyl overdoses is the number one cause of death for people under 40, which is mind-boggling. It's, 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 it's one of the higher ones. You know, addiction kills a lot of young people. As to suicide, you know, not to get too heavy, but it's reality. We talk about one of the leading causes of death from addiction is suicide. Just the- the, the pain that comes from it. So when we talk about mental health in America right now, these are all the same concepts. You know, we've got to reduce the stigma on addiction so folks can get help. And, and I feel like by trying to break those stereotypes of what drug addiction, particularly crystal meth addiction looks like, might help to start reducing that stigma a little bit so folks can get the help they need. Uh, drug addiction crosses all backgrounds and you know, it, it's as much an upper middle class suburb with an attorney in their house using crystal meth as it is you know, the, the trailer park rural image of America. Like we've got to put those to bed because they're, they're, like I said, they're so damaging for everybody. People who fit it internalize it. And obviously some people do. Those who don't fit it don't think they have a problem when they do. And for men and women with alcohol addiction, it's especially damaging because they get into this false sense of security. Okay, well, at least I don't have a drug problem. Well, alcohol kills many people each year. You know, a lot of people die from alcohol addiction. You know, that's another thing we try to do in our foundation is try to not demonize alcohol, but make sure people understand that alcohol can keep right up with the most potent hard drugs in terms of the heartbreak it leaves in its path. People don't think of it as as the dangerous drug that it is. It is an you know a central nervous system depressant. It causes a lot of pain, a lot of traffic fatalities. Um, there is a big trend now with non-alcoholic drinks and non-alcoholic bars becoming yeah. very popular. They The stats with Gen Z show that they're drinking a whole lot less than the, there's a company right now called Liquid Death Water. They do some crazy, bizarre marketing, but it's very edgy. So it's, it's controversial, but it's, it, it's, it looks like beer. I don't know if you're familiar with the liquid. No, I'm familiar. Their non-alcoholic bars are becoming a thing. And I think no one could be happier than me because I think that we need to make it easier for people to be sober. You know, you know like I say to employers when I do a training, does your holiday party include non-alcoholic options. Imagine if you had a holiday party where your Muslim or LDS or, or Jewish employees felt uncomfortable. You wouldn't do that in today's world correctly. Well, if you serve alcohol, your employees in recovery aren't going to feel as included. How is it running the nonprofit? Because that's a lot of work. And did you have any background running or not? How did you, you know, it's over, it can be overwhelming. It's a lot of work. Are you working like 12 hour days, 14 hour days? And the first two years were, were 65 hour weeks. You know, I, um, this, this is my, my life's work. You know, I, I founded it, you know, with my own resources. So I'm an entrepreneur. I think of myself as a social entrepreneur because obviously the 501c3, everything we raise goes back into this. But for me, it's a passion. It is a lot of work. I have a great team. I want to share one thing. You referenced this, the LDS background. We've actually started working with faith groups to try to approach this as a social justice issue, which I'm really proud of. We've reached out to the Jewish community, the evangelical community, and where I come from, which is the Episcopal kind of mainline Protestant backgrounds in the Catholic Church to say, look, whatever your faith tradition, if you believe in doing good in the world, 
addictions to gravy equalizer, whether you're a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat, nobody wants their kids growing up addicted to drugs, obviously. So what if we bring people together of different faith backgrounds to try to say, look, whatever else we may disagree on, we all agree on the pain of addiction. So that's one of our newest initiatives to try to frame this to people of faith as social justice. You know, people deserve a second chance. And it's been really neat bringing together people who might not necessarily travel in the same circles and may not agree on everything, but we all can agree we got to fight addiction in America. I'm very, that's probably my signature initiative in our foundation. Oh, I love that. So for anybody listening, what are the best ways that I went on your website earlier so they can direct, they can donate directly to your website, but what other kind of volunteer opportunities are there Absolutely. for somebody? Or- Absolutely. I mean, clearly we certainly welcome donations, but you know, I'm, I'm out here also trying to, to do stigma too. We do need money, but we also need volunteers. You know, um, we are 501c3, so any tax, any donations are tax deductible reach out to us and I'd put you in touch with some of our board members and some of our other team and find out like, you know, where you live, you know, maybe you could be a resource for someone in your community in recovery. You know, we call it allyship, you know, maybe in your community, we could connect you to somebody else because we work nationwide trying to rebuild their life. You know, how cool would that be if you knew that you could use someone as a resource to help rebuild your network? You know, and what's really neat is as you put your life back together, the people from your past who may be pulled away have a tendency to start coming back around when they see you get it back together. But sometimes you need a, sec- a little bit of a, of a, of a hand. And, mm-hmm. and that's what we're trying to do because you can lose everything in addiction. Yes, I, I have, a, as you and I both know, you know, it, it, it causes a lot of families to fall apart and it some what it, it does to families is the evil is the worst part of addiction people kind of have a breaking point where they just can't deal with it and I, with the alcohol people that grew up in alcoholic homes um people their kids seem to have you know don't it's a lifelong pain and a lot of them don't forgive their parents even when they're clean and sober it's like no i, I just can't i can't go back there and i i'm always it's always heartbreaking to hear but i didn't live it and I, I didn't know that experience and um it's heartbreaking to hear so, because it's I, generational often, you know, because the children are traumatized by the chaos generated by the adult's addiction. So, if you have an adult in their 40s with an addiction, okay, the problems from that are traumatizing their children. When mom and dad go to prison, when mom and dad are unemployed, when mom and dad have domestic violence, when there's poverty, all the social problems from addiction hurt the children. So, then they grow up with all this pain and then they fall into it. And addictions are already genetically predisposed anyway, all right? So it's, it's, it's a monster of a disease. You know, it may not be treated like cancer or diabetes, but it's a disease no differently. And it's a manageable one, but it's a lifelong one. And you need help. And that's what we're out there trying to do is provide it because there's no one else, there's nothing else out there. Insurance does not pay for this. No, they And I wouldn't take it as competition if other people were out there doing this, but the best of our knowledge other than like, I know the Salvation Army does some cool stuff around like basic resume review, but there aren't, there's not the depth and breadth of what we're trying to do. Like the specialized programs where we walk with you for a year into getting you back into the workplace to try to break that generational cycle. Well, I think it's remarkable. I think it's, your story is remarkable. I'm so glad you made it. They found you in the field. You can't help it. Whether you believe in God or spiritual, when something like that happens, you got to take it as the- I think it had the hand of God, but that's, you know, however you see it, it certainly was a story. And I'm just glad we can help other folks with it. 
and you found this other passion and calling in life. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that I bid that I might not have asked before we wrap it up? I'm, I'm again, thank you for your time today. I'll do anything oh, I can to promote your organization. I just think it's remarkable. And I'm glad well, I, just sharing what we're doing, you know, obviously that helps us with visibility and donations, but also letting businesses know, you know, if you need training on how to do this, we provide that. You know, and, and we have a whole team that we bring in because there's so much stuff around how to promote a recovery sensitive workplace. How do you talk about it? How do you know the laws around it? Because clearly you don't need to tolerate someone showing up at work drunk or high. And I would never say you should. But how do you navigate this? And it takes a surgeon. Well, it means a lot that you took the time to, to meet with me. A lot of times people won't meet with you till like you're famous or you're already on TV. I'm sure if I, you know, if I called and I said, I'm from 60 Minutes, you know, everyone returns your call. So uh, you're busy. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing you're Thank doing. You. And I wish you well. All right. We'll talk. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week, and please share with your friends.